This is Tales from Lovecraft, bringing to you the weird and cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft, read by Michael Gabriel Becker. Today's tale, The Alchemist. High up, crowning the grassy summit of a swelling mound whose sides are wooded near the base with the garnel trees of the primeval forest, stands the old chateau of my ancestors. For centuries its lofty battlements have frowned down upon the wild and rugged countryside about, serving as a home and stronghold for the proud house whose honored line is older than even the moss-grown castle walls. These ancient turrets, stained by the storms of generations and crumbling under the slow yet mighty pressure of time, formed in the ages of feudalism one of the most dreaded and formidable fortresses in all France. From its machicolated parapets and mounted battlements, barons, counts, and even kings had been defied, yet never had its spacious halls resounded to the footsteps of the invader. But since these glorious years, all has changed. A poverty, but little above the level of dire want, together with a pride of name that forbids its alleviation by the pursuits of commercial life, have presented the scions of our time from maintaining their essays in pristine splendor, and the falling stones of the walls, the overgrown vegetation in the parks, the dry and dusty moat, the ill-paved courtyards and toppling towers without, as well as the sagging floors, the worm-eaten wainscots, and the faded tapestries within, all tell a gloomy tale of fallen grandeur. As the ages passed, first one, then another of the four great turrets were left to ruin, until at last but a single tower housed the sadly reduced descendants of the once mighty lords of the estate. It was in one of the vast and gloomy chambers of this remaining tower that I, Antoine, last of the unhappy and accursed Comtes de C, first saw the light of the day ninety long years ago. Within these walls and amongst the dark and shadowy forests, the wild ravines and grottos of the hillside below were spent the first years of my troubled life. My parents I never knew. My father had been killed at the age of 32, a month before I was born, by the falling of a stone somehow dislodged from one of the deserted parapets in the castle, and my mother having died at my birth. My care and education devolved solely upon one remaining servitor, an old and trusted man of considerable intelligence, whose name I remember as Pierre. I was an only child, and the lack of companionship with this fact entailed upon me was augmented by the strange care exercised by my aged guardian in excluding me from the society of the peasant children whose abodes were scattered here and there upon the plains that surround the base of the hill. At the time, Pierre said that this restriction was imposed upon me because of my noble birth. It placed me above association with such plebeian company. Now, I know that its real object was to keep from my ears the idle tales of the dread curse upon our line that were nightly told and magnified by the simple tenantry as they conversed in hushed accents of the glow of their cottage hearths. 
Thus isolated and thrown upon my own resources, I spent the hours of my childhood in poring over the ancient tomes that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau, and in roaming without aim or purpose through the perpetual dusk of the spectral wood that clothed the side of the hill near its foot. It was perhaps an effect of such surroundings that my mind early acquired a shade of melancholy. Those studies and pursuits which partake of the dark and occult in nature most strongly claimed my attention. Of my own race I was permitted to learn singularly little, yet what small knowledge of it I was able to gain seemed to depress me much. Perhaps it was at first only the manifest reluctance of my old preceptor to discuss with me my paternal ancestry that gave rise to the terror which I have ever felt at the mention of my great house. Yet as I grew out of childhood, I was, I, I was able to piece together disconnected fragments of discourse, let slip from the unwilling tongue which had begun to falter in approaching senility that had a sort of relation to a certain circumstance which I had always deemed strange, but which now became dimly terrible. The circumstance to which I allude is the early age at which all the Comtes of my line had met their end. Whilst I had hitherto considered this but a natural attribute of a family of short-lived men, I afterward pondered long upon these premature deaths and began to connect them with the wanderings of the old man who often spoke of a curse which for centuries had prevented the lives of the holders of my title from much exceeding the span of thirty-two years. Upon my twenty-first birthday, the aged Pierre gave me a family document which he said had for many generations been handed down from father to son, and continued by each possessor. Its contents were of the most startling nature, and its perusal confirmed the gravest of my apprehensions. At this time, my belief in the supernatural was firm and deep-seated, else I should have dismissed this with scorn, the incredible narrative unfolded before my eyes. The paper carried me back to the days of the 13th century, when the old castle in which I sat had been a feared and impregnable fortress. It told of a certain ancient man who had once dwelt in our estates, a person of no small accomplishments, though little above the rank of peasant by name Michael, usually designated by the surname of Malvis, the evil, on account of his sinister reputation. He had studied beyond the custom of his kind, seeking such things as the philosopher's stone or the elixir of eternal life, and was reputed wise in the terrible secrets of black magic and alchemy. Michael Malvis had one son named Charles, a youth as proficient as himself in the hidden arts, and who had therefore been called Le Sorciere, or the Wizard. This pair, shunned by all honest folk, were suspected of the most hideous practices. Old Michael was said to have burnt his wife alive as a sacrifice to the devil, and the unaccountable disappearances of many small peasant children were laid on that dreaded door of these two. Yet through the dark natures of the father and the son ran one redeeming ray of humanity, the evil old man loved his offspring with fierce intensity, whilst the youth had for his parent a more than filial affection. One night the castle on the hill was thrown into the wildest confusion by the vanishment of young Godfrey, son of Henry the Comte. A searching party, headed by the frantic father, invaded the cottage of the sorcerers, and there came upon old Michael Malvis, busy over a huge and violently boiling cauldron. 
Without certain cause, in the ungoverned madness of fury and despair, the Comte laid hands on the aged wizard, and ere he released his murderous hold, his victim was no more. Meanwhile, joyful servants were proclaiming the finding of young Godfrey in a distant and unused chamber of the great edifice, telling too late that poor Michael had been killed in vain. As the Comte and his associates turned away from the lowly abode of the alchemists, the form of Charles Le Sorcier appeared through the trees. The excited chatter of the menials standing about told him what had occurred, yet he seemed at first unmoved at his father's fate. Then, slowly advancing to meet the Comte, he pronounced in dull yet terrible accents the curse that ever afterward haunted the house of C. May ne'er a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine, spake he, when suddenly leaping backwards into the black wood, he drew from his tunic a file of colorless liquid which he threw into the face of his father's slayer as he disappeared beneath the inky curtain of the night. The Comte died without utterance and was buried the next day, but little more than two and thirty years from the hour of his birth. No trace of the assassin could be found, though relentless bands of peasants scoured the neighboring woods and the meadowland around the hill. Thus time and the want of a reminder dulled the memory of the curse in the minds of the late Comte's family, so that when Godfrey, innocent cause of the whole tragedy and now bearing the title, was killed by an arrow whilst hunting at the age of thirty-two, there were no thoughts save those of grief at his demise. But when years afterwards the next young Comte, Robert by name, was found dead in a nearby field from no apparent cause, the peasants told in whispers that their seigneur had but lately passed his thirty-second birthday, when surprised by early death. Louis, son to Robert, was found drowned in the moat at the same fateful age, and thus down through the centuries ran the ominous chronicle. Henry's, Robert's, Antoine's, and Armand's, snatched from happy and virtuous lives when little below the age of their unfortunate ancestor at his murder that I had left at most but eleven years of further existence was made certain to me by the words which I read. My life, previously held at small value, now became dearer to me each day as I delved deeper and deeper into the mysteries of the hidden world of black magic. Isolated as I was, modern science had produced no impression upon me, and I labored as in the Middle Ages, as rapt as had been old Michael and young Charles themselves in the acquisition of demonological and alchemical learning. Yet, read as I might, in no manner could I account for the strange curse upon my line. In unusually rational moments, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation, attributing the early deaths of my ancestors to the sinister Charles the Sorcerer and his heirs, yet having found upon careful inquiry that there were no known descendants of the alchemist. I would fall back to occult studies and once more endeavor to find a spell that would release my house from its terrible burden. Upon one thing I was absolutely resolved. I should never wed, for since no other branches of my family were in existence, I might thus end the curse with myself. As I drew near the age of thirty, old Pierre was called to the land beyond. Alone I buried him beneath the stones of the courtyard about which he had loved to wander in life. Thus I was left to ponder on myself as the only human creature within the great fortress, 
and in my utter solitude my mind began to cease its vain protest against the impending doom, to become almost reconciled to the fate which so many of my ancestors had met. Much of my time was now occupied in the exploration of the ruined and abandoned halls and towers of the old chateau, which in youth fear had caused me to shun, and some of which, old Pierre had once told me, had not been trodden by human foot for over four centuries. Strange and awesome were many of the objects I encountered. Furniture, covered by the dust of ages and crumbling with the rot of long dampness, met my eyes. Cobwebs in a profusion never before seen by me were spun everywhere, and huge bats flapped their bony and uncanny wings on all sides of the otherwise untenanted gloom. Of my exact age, even down to days and hours, I kept a most careful record, for each moment of the pendulum of the massive clock in the library told off so much more of my doomed existence. At length, I approached that time which I had so long viewed with apprehension, since most of my ancestors had been seized some little while before they reached the exact age of Comte Henry at his side. I was every moment on the watch for the coming of the unknown death. In what strange form the curse should overtake me I knew not, but I was resolved, at least, that it should not find me a cowardly or passive victim. With new vigor, I applied myself to my examination of the old chateau and its contents. It was upon one of the longest of all my excursions of discovery in the deserted portion of the castle, less than a week before that fatal hour which I felt must mark the utmost limit of my stay on earth, beyond which I could not have even the slightest hope of continuing to draw breath, that I came upon the culminating event of my whole life. I had spent the better part of the morning in climbing up and down half-ruined staircases in one of the most dilapidated of the ancient turrets. As the afternoon progressed, I sought the lower levels, descending into what appeared to be either a medieval place of confinement or a more recently excavated storehouse for gunpowder. As I slowly traversed the nitro-encrusted passageway at the foot of the last staircase, the paving became very damp, and soon I saw by the light of my fl flickering torch that a blank, water-stained wall impeded my journey. Turning to retrace my steps, my eye fell upon a small trapdoor with a ring, which lay directly beneath my feet. Pausing, I succeeded with difficulty in raising it, whereupon was revealed a black aperture, exhaling noxious fumes, which caused my torch to sputter, and disclosing in the unsteadily glare the top of a flight of stone steps. As soon as the torch which I lowered into the repellent depths burned freely and steadily, I commenced my descent. The steps were many, and led to a narrow stone-flagged passage, which I knew must be far underground. The passage proved of great length and terminated in a massive oaken door, dripping with the moisture of the place, and stoutly resisting all my attempts to open it. Ceasing after a time my efforts in this direction, I had proceeded back some distance toward the steps, when there suddenly fell to my experience one of the most profound and maddening shocks capable of reception by the human mind. Without warning, I heard the heavy door behind me creak slowly open on its rusted hinges. My immediate sensations were incapable of analysis. To be confronted in a place as thoroughly deserted as I had deemed the old castle, with evidence of the presence of a man or spirit, produced in my brain a horror of the most acute description. When at last I turned and faced the seat of the sound, 
My eyes must have started from their orbits at the sight that they beheld. There, in the ancient Gothic doorway, stood a human figure. It was that of a man clad in a skull cap and long medieval tunic of dark color. His long hair and flowing beard were of a terrible and intense black hue and of incredible profusion. His forehead, high beyond the usual dimensions, his cheeks, deep sunken and heavily lined with wrinkles, and his hands, long, claw-like and gnarled, were of such a deathly marble-like whiteness as I have never elsewhere seen in man. His figure, leaned to the proportions of a skeleton, was strangely bent and was almost lost within the voluminous folds of his peculiar garment. But strangest of all were his eyes, twin caves of abysmal blackness, profound in expression of understanding, yet inhuman in degree of wickedness. These were now fixed upon me, piercing my soul with their hatred and rooting me to the spot whereon I stood. At last the figure spoke in a rumbling voice that chilled me through with its dull hollowness and latent malevolence. The language in which the discourse was clothed was that debased form of Latin in use amongst the more learned men of the Middle Ages, and made familiar to me by my prolonged researches into the works of the old alchemists and demonologists. The apparition spoke of the curse which had hovered over my house, told me of my coming end, dwelt on the wrong perpetrated by my ancestor against old Michael Malvis, and gloated over the revenge of Charles Le Sorcier. He told how the young Charles had escaped into the night, returning in after years to kill Godfrey the heir, with an arrow just as he approached the age which had been his father's at his assassination. How he had secretly returned to the estate and established himself, unknown, in the even then deserted subterranean chamber whose doorway now framed the hideous narrator. How he had seized Robert, son of Godfrey, in a field, forced poison down his throat, and left him to die at the age of thirty-two, thus maintaining the foul provisions of his vengeful curse. At this point I was left to imagine the solution of the greatest mystery of all. How the curse had been fulfilled since that time when Charles Le Sorcier must in the course of nature have died, for the man digressed into an account of the deep alchemical studies of the two wizards, father and son, speaking most particularly in the researches of Charles Le Sorcier concerning the elixir which had granted him who partook of it eternal life and youth. His enthusiasm had seemed for a moment to remove from his terrible eyes the hatred that at first so haunted him. But suddenly the fiendish glare returned, and with a shocking sound like the hissing of a serpent, the stranger raised the glass phial with the evil intent of ending my life, as had Charles Le Saucier six hundred years before ended that of my ancestor. Prompted by some preserving instinct of self-defense, I broke through the spell that had hitherto held me immovable, and flung my now dying torch at the creature who menaced my existence. I heard the file break harmlessly against the stones of the passage as the tunic of the strange man caught fire and lit the horrid scene with a ghastly radiance. The shriek of fright and impotent malice emitted by the would-be assassin proved too much for my already shaken nerves, and I fell prone upon the slimy floor in a total faint. When at last my senses returned, all was frightfully dark and my mind remembered what had occurred, shrank from the idea of beholding more, yet curiosity overmastered all. 
Who, I asked myself, was this man of evil, and how came he within the castle walls? Why should he seek to avenge the death of poor Michael Malvis, and how had the curse been carried on through all the long centuries since the time of Charles Le Sorcier? The dread of years was lifted from my shoulders, for I knew that he whom I had felled was the source of all my danger from the curse, and now that I was free, I burned with the desire to learn more of the sinister thing which had haunted my line for centuries, and made of my own youth one long continued nightmare. Determined upon further exploration, I felt in my pockets for flint and steel, and lit the unused torch which I had with me. First of all, the new light revealed the distorted and blackened form of the mysterious stranger. The hideous eyes were now closed. Disliking the sight, I turned away and entered the chamber beyond the gothic door. Here I found what seemed much like an alchemist's laboratory. In one corner was an immense pile of a shining yellow metal that sparkled gorgeously in the light of the torch. It may have been gold, but I did not pause to examine it, for I was strangely affected by that which I had undergone. At the farther end of the apartment was an opening leading out into one of the many wild ravines of the dark hillside forest. Filled with wonder, yet now realizing how the man had obtained access to the chateau, I proceeded to return. I had intended to pass by the remains of the stranger with a averted face, but as I approached the body, I seemed to hear emanating from it a faint sound, as though life were not yet wholly extinct. Aghast, I tuned to examine the charred and shriveled figure on the floor. Then all at once the horrible eyes, blacker even than the seared face in which they were set, opened wide with an expression which I was unable to interpret. The cracked lips tried to frame words which I could not well understand. Once I caught the name of Charles Le Saucier, and again I fancied that the words were years and curse issued from the twisted mouth. Still, I was at a loss to gather the purpose of this of his disconnected speech. At my evident ignorance of his meaning, the pitchy eyes once more flashed malevolently at me, until... Helpless as I saw my opponent to be, I trembled as I watched him. Suddenly, the wretch, animated with his last burst of strength, raised his hideous head from the damp and sunken pavement. Then, as I remained, paralyzed with fear, he found his voice, and in his dying breath screamed forth those words which have ever afterward haunted my days and nights. Fool! he shrieked. Can you not guess my secret? Have you no brain whereby you cannot recognize the will which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved? I tell you it is I, I, I that have lived for six hundred years to maintain my revenge. For I am Charles Le Sorcier. This has been Tales from Lovecraft, bringing to you the weird and cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft. I'm Michael Gabriel Becker. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating at anchor.fm slash talesfromlovecraft to support the future of this podcast. Feel free to contact me by leaving me a voice message at anchor.fm slash talesfromlovecraft, sending me an email at talesfromlovecraft at gmail.com 
or find me on Twitter at Lovecraft Tales. If you are interested in any of my other projects, my writing, other podcasts, and more, please check out my website at epsilonactual.net.